Good morning, VCF. I'm glad to be speaking to you. Um, it's been about two weeks since the fall conference, and we've been privileged to have uh, Malcolm as well as Rajiv speak to us, but I'm also very happy to be back. And I want to share with you a word which I feel pretty excited about. There's a way in which uh, uh, God, will, God speaks to us in such a way that we are changed by the speech, yeah? by the speech itself. Um, the, the, uh, the Lutheran, or rather the, the Reformers had this phrase, God speaking in person, yeah? God speaking in person, Deus uh, loquentis persona, which means that God, when he speaks, he is in the speaking. And so let's believe God that he will do that. Let's pray. Lord, we welcome you. Uh, we praise you that you are here with us. You are not here at a distance uh, just to give us words, but the words are embodied in you. You are embodied in the words. And we thank you that even now, that even as we speak, should you not come back again, you will water us and feed us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, I just wanted to make sure we prayed that in case Jesus comes back while I'm preaching. In the meantime, I'd like to share with you a word uh, from John chapter 6. And uh, I'm going to read a few verses first and uh, talk about uh, something that is extremely important. I think it's very easy for us to miss this out. Uh, John chapter 6, we'll read this from verse 26. Uh, Jesus had uh, uh, fed the, the multitudes and because of that, uh, they were wanting to seek him. Yeah, they wanted to seek him. And he had gone over to the other side and they found him. And Jesus answered them, verse 26, and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, seek me. You seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Okay, has not given, but will give to you. Uh, toil or work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of, God, Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. Therefore they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. We'll stop here a little bit. Um, about, about a month ago, I was uh, privileged to be invited to speak at the burial service of uh, Mary Vargas, uh, um, Annie, uh, Annie's uh, uh, mother. She died at a grand old age of 90-something. I can't remember how, how, how old she was. But uh, she was a very, very godly woman. And um, I felt that as I was speaking... In those short minutes, I was speaking under the shadow of her testament, her testimony, and uh, her, her, her life. Mary Vergas was a, 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 a very, very um, godly woman who affected many, many people uh, back in India as well as in uh, America. Um, and I shared from that verse, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And I began to realize before I, I, I had spoken that Mary had lived and worked for that which endures, so much so that not just her legacy, but the things that she did endured for a very long time. They were not just good, good deeds that lasted for that moment, but deeds that had eternal significance and eternal um, existence and permanence in the lives of those she had, uh, she had uh, ministered to or she had blessed. And uh, Rajan actually told me a very wonderful story which I want to tell you about in her life. It happened that to about 23 years ago, um, uh, he had bought three banana trees for his three children. So planted these three banana trees in the, in the, in the yard. I was, I was going to say garden. I think here in America you use the word yard, not garden. Uh, but in the yard, and uh, I think it was in the front. And uh, it happened that two of the trees did very well. They just grew normally. But one of the, la the trees, and I won't say whose tree it was, 
but that tree did not uh, uh, thrive well, and actually, eventually, it seemed like it died. So they had tried all kinds of things to try to, try to resuscitate the tree, but there came a point in which the tree could not be sustained any longer. It was dying, and it looked like it had died. And so they chopped the tree down and actually laid it out to um, its... Uh, to, to, to be thrown into the dump. But uh, Mary, a woman of faith, felt very sorry for this grandchild whose tree was dead. And so she decided that she was going to pray for that tree until something happened. So she prayed. She prayed every day for that tree and they replanted the tree And as she prayed for that tree, miracle of miracles, the tree revived. Not only did that tree revive, it became the most fruitful tree, as far as I've heard from Rajan. And as it continued to bear fruit, the other two trees went the natural way, not the normal way, and these banana trees don't last forever. Uh, But up to today, that third tree that Mary prayed for, is still continuing to bring fruit, bananas, or as you say, bananas, uh, up to today. And uh, Rajan actually gave me a, a shot, I, would, I wish I could show it to you, that this thriving 23-year-old banana tree that has fruit galore, fruit abundantly, in a way that is even more uh, profuse than those other two trees. And what struck me about that was that the work that she did was eternal. It had the quality of eternity in it. It was not just naturally good, but it had an eternal quality in it. Now, I saw that that Rajan, as he told me that story, that this miracle, this work, the work of God, had an effect upon him far greater than the ability to eat bananas. He he was able to see the treasure, the precious treasure out of that. And now 23 years later, not only does the tree exist, but the tree of spiritual blessing that was planted in him continues to bear fruit. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by that. Today I'd like to talk about that. What is it? What does it mean to actually have this life, this eternal life, life in which the works that we do actually last forever. They're qualitatively different from those things that we can do for ourselves, those constructs that we build for ourselves. And today what I'd like to do is to actually um, talk a little bit about this eternal life, this life that God plants in us. And it really is a continuation of what we've been speaking about in, uh, in, the, in the fall conference when we talked about the feast in the wilderness. God has a feast in the wilderness. Now, there's some aspect of that that I have not really spoken about, which I've waited till now to actually speak about. And that has to do with the fact that there is a feast in the wilderness and that feast is um, uh, uh, um, um, emblemized by manna. Okay, so please turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, and we greet our friends, the children of Israel, our own, um, our own ancestors in, in the spirit, complaining, of course, what else? In chapter 16, they had come to a point in which the 40 days journey supply of uh, food had pretty much been depleted. And so now they are faced with, faced with the reality that there was absolutely no assurance that food would be available for them. And so they complain. And then verse 4 of chapter 16, the Lord uh, responds, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them. That I may test them. It's almost as if what God had in mind was not just to supply their needs, but to test them. 
Now that's really important because that's going to be uh, a theme. Whether or not they will walk in my instructions, the meaning of the manna that was going to come had to do with a testing, a drawing out of what was in their heart and a drawing out of the pressures. That's what testing means. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the sons of Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember that uh, that word know. The wilderness is meant to cause us to having a, have a knowing, a deep knowing of God, a deep conviction of God, a knowing. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumbling against the Lord, and what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. Moses is really upset about the grumblings. You see that word grumbling? Grumblings used so many times. Verse 10. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked towards the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying, At twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That's the word know again. And so it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing. Fine as the frost on the ground. And just imagine that. The word thing is used because of the fact that there's no, there was no uh, Hebrew word for that thing. There was something that was quite outside of their own experience. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Yeah, or what is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. And you shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he could eat. So there was enough for everybody. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And here's the test, right? And some left part of it until morning. That means they were trying to hoard it. They were trying to save some of it. So they will have some left over. And it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them and gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he And they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he could eat. But, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. So it's interesting that this manna was perishable. It actually had a short shelf life. In fact, its shelf life was not eternal. Right? It was not something that lasts forever. Sometimes we think the things of God should last forever. It should, like, like it should stay. And sometimes we experience a, a f- like a flake of God's blessing. Like a little flake of God's blessing. And we think that we can just hoard, hoard it. Or we can actually store it. Or do whatever we like with it. But actually, this manna resists our control. The manna of God resists our control. And I'm going to use this word so that um, we, we, can, we can sort of uh, latch on to, to some kind of focus. The manna, the word is this, resist con- commodifying. It resists commodifying. Now what was happening was the children of Israel were taking the blessing of God and they were commodifying it, making it into a commodity that they could control, that they could actually use whenever they want. They could actually store. They could, they could uh, 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 increase their capitalism with it. Who knows? They may have wanted to, to to gather some more and then sell it to the nations around. Who knows? But there is this thing that was resisting the nature of God's blessing, and that was the human desire to commodify the blessing of God. 
And what God begins to show them is that actually, if you start doing that, it will start stinking, it starts rotting, even things of God. And what we see here is that God was wanting to actually bring that commodifying thing that's in the children of Israel that causes them to never be able to experience real eternal life, real life of God that lasts forever. And so I'd like to actually dwell here because what God Jesus has for us uh, is much, much greater. And so what we see here is this, a way in which perhaps this, this analogy speaks to our life in which sometimes we find that God blesses us with things, but we don't seem to be changed. We don't seem to actually grow in conviction, in security, in satisfaction, or feeling loved, or feeling more confident, or feeling better self-esteem. There's something about the way in which the children of Israel responded to the manna that is actually analogous to how we respond to God's blessings or how we respond to God. And actually, what Jesus was saying to the, to the, to the crowd as they came and they had been fed by the 5,000 is this. You're not seeking me because of the signs. Actually, you're seeking me because you got fed. And so there is a circumstantial need that you have that is driving your relationship with me. And I would put it to you that actually a lot of Christians do not experience an inner change in their life with God in spite of the fact that God does bless them because there's this way in which we commodify God. We commodify our spirituality. We commodify or make into a commodity or something that we can control or something that, can, that gets subsumed into our own agenda, what we need. Uh, we commodify these things. Uh, and as a result of that, what God wants to give to us is the living bread, the bread that changes us. Later on, we will see in John chapter 6, Jesus said, what? you have no life in yourself. I am the bread of life. I am the one that gives you life. If you do not eat the bread of life, you do not eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink of His blood, you will have no life in yourself. Now, here's the question that, 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 this, that arises. Why is it we do not experience the life of God to such an extent it explodes or erupts or emerges in supernatural things? What is preventing us from converting the manna, so to speak, the provision into life that is solid, changing, growing, thickening, becoming more weighty with being. And so perhaps as we look at the way in which the children of Israel looked at the manna or related to the manna, we may get some clues. More importantly, what Jesus has to say is going to make a lot of difference. So let's have a look at this. So there they were. They, they took the bread. They took the manna. They didn't know what it was. They had no idea what the meaning of that manna was. But they imposed upon it their own agenda. Okay. So what we have is this. Their relationship with the manna was one in which it was self-centered. With the, there's a difference between commodifying okay, or commodity and, um, and a sacrament. A sacrament is a physical blessing that has God shining through it. A sacrament, just like the bread and the cup that we've just ate, uh, eaten, is not significant in and of itself in its physicality so much as the fact that God shines through it. When we take the bread and take the cup, what God, what God does is that He relates to us over and above and through, in, in and through these elements, these sacraments, but in such a way that these sacraments are not meant to make us feel full. You will not be full when you eat the little wafers. But that's, what God does is that it, He changes us through that because we actually eat of God Himself. We eat of God Himself. 
Now, the children of Israel were taking the manna, but they were not eating of God himself. They were actually commodifying it. The way in which you relate to a commodity, okay, is such that you are at the center and the commodity is at the periphery. So you control the com- commodity. Does that make sense? So what they were doing is this, as God supplied them, they had all kinds of agendas of their own for that, for that manner. They could not relate to spiritual things in a spiritual way. Because when you want to relate to spiritual things, you have to relate in such a way that you are not the center. It's not for you in and of itself. It will bless you, but its true blessing will not come when you are at the center of it. Okay? Uh, 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 in a commodity, it is the commodity in relation to you. But when you relate to a sacrament in which God has himself in it, it is you in relation to it. You are not at the center. It is in the center. And you are in the periphery. You relate to it. And that's why the Catholics sometimes bow to the host. Because they have the understanding that it is the center of gravity and I am then the periphery. Does that make sense? To commodify spiritual things is to take these spiritual things and use it for your own agenda. And that is why a lot of Christianity in America, in the West, and actually in, in, in the East, just as bad, okay, just as bad, is the commodification of spiritual things. That's why you have mediums, you have uh, certain aspects of, uh, of, of uh, Christianity that are so into the prosperity of it, so much into the blessing of it, that actually the moment the blessing comes, it gets, it gets commodified. It becomes a commodity and it gets, it, it gets saved for a, a rainy day. It gets subsumed under our own, um, our own uh, desires and it stinks the next day. And sometimes we wonder, why is it the things of God didn't last? You got healed and then suddenly you lost your healing. You got blessed by financially and then you lost your blessing. You got, you, you, God gives you a, a spouse and then you end up divorcing because of the fact that that manna or that blessing has become commodified. We can commodify our spouses. We can commodify our children. We can commodify the Bible. We can commodify um, church. You can commodify community. As long as you are in the center, you are relating to it. It has, it has to relate to you as in, in the center. You will actually cause the whole thing to stink. My suggestion is this, that much of our intelligence, our resources, our gifts and all that have been commodified. We treat them as commodities for our blessing. Even our calling. I hear people talking about their calling, but they think, they talk about it as if it is their own sense of meaning for themselves, their own self-actualization, their own self, uh, self, um, self-building up right now. But when you relate to a, a sacrament of which manna was one, you are relating to it in its agenda for you. God says, I'm going to use this manna not only to supply your needs, not only to feed you, but to actually test you. To show you so that you will know that I will take, I'm the one that took you out of Egypt. The thing about a sacrament is this. It is, it causes deep knowing to happen. It causes the eternal life, the deeper stuff that's supposed to happen in us to take place. And so, in, in many ways, Exodus chapter 16 is a picture of this way in which we tend to relate to spiritual things or how we relate to God. Amen? Now, there's a, there's a way in which God wants to actually build us up on the inside. I, um, we can put uh, Exodus 16 aside for a while. I'd like to turn with you to um, Philippians chapter 1. Uh, let's look at Philippians chapter 1, verse uh, 19 and 20. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Paul finds himself under tremendous persecution, of course, uh, in prison and uh, in danger again and again and again. And he speaks about enemies, even Christians around him that have not the best of motives. But in the midst of that, he sees that in spite of the fact that there is too much pressure, 
an affliction upon him, the gospel is going out like nobody's business, right? And so here he says in verse 18, sorry, verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. See the word know? I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. See the conviction there. Through your prayers and through the provision, I like the King James Version better, through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that in all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What Paul is saying is this, okay? He's saying this, there is such a thing as a supply of the Spirit, a provision of the Spirit that I can eat of, I can drink of, I can on a daily existential level be, be open to and be receiving. Okay? I will receive this just like the manna, just like the water in the wilderness. I'm going to receive this. I have my, I have my earnest expectation and hope is this, because of the supply of the Spirit and the prayers, I will not be ashamed. Now you're talking about an inward conviction that is growing, the kind of change that takes place that's not, that doesn't come from commodifying the Holy Spirit. But he says that because of the supply of the Spirit, I will not be ashamed, but with boldness I will proclaim everything that in boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body. That means manifested in my body. That means miracles will happen. The light of God will happen. Conviction will come through. Supernatural things will happen. The, the things that I labor for in terms of eternal life, the kind of things that cause the third banana tree to keep going. These kinds of things will be exalted in my banana tree, in my body right now. What Paul is saying is this, because of the supply of the Spirit, this sacramental supply of the Holy Spirit has been given, the life of God has been given to me, I can draw from it. I can draw from it in every situation, even though I am actually uh, surrounded by adversaries. I'm not, I, ha- I have been able to draw from it in such a way that I know I have the earnest expectation and hope. Now, remember that hope is not optimism. It's not just like, I hope it will happen. But it's a certain conviction, something solid that's there. I possess the actuality of the future answer to prayer. I, 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 my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing will I be ashamed. Can you imagine that? Now we've been asking the question, why is it we, in spite of all that we know about God, all that we have read from God, we've heard in, 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 this, in this church and teaching and preaching and books, book reading and all that, why is it we don't experience that? Why is it we don't experience this kind of earnest expectation and hope that in nothing will we be, we be ashamed, but in, uh, in, in anything, with all boldness, He will be exalted in our body. I have to know this, you see, because I've been a Christian for a long, long time. I was born a Christian. When I was born, I had a little Bible in my hand. And, I, and, and, and as, 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 as I grew up, I saw other Christians next to me as well who would give lip service to the power of God and the reality of God. But I look in their, in their hearts. When, they, when they're outside of talking theological or spiritual things, they talk as if they are people completely the natural. What is it that causes us to not somehow be fed on the inside in such a way that we grow in boldness, grow in conviction, grow in security, grow in self-esteem, grow in the gifts, grow in love, grow in comfort, grow in peace, grow in boldness, grow in confidence and grow in conviction. The thing that, that God is here speaking of, by analogy through the type of manner, has to do with the fact that He wants to feed us and strengthen us, and change us on the inside. But the first thing that we saw in the example of manna is that the tendency for human beings is to commodify all spiritual things. And that is why we often find ourselves using our gifts to make us feel good about ourselves. Using our position, our authority, 
in church or in, in, in ecclesiastical terms, to feel good about ourselves. In fact, when things are taken away from us or we seem to not be doing very well, our self-esteem goes up and down and, and before long, we don't know who we are. And who we are is affected by what other people think about us. No, I don't think Christ died on the cross for all that. I didn't become a Christian for 60-odd years so that I'd still be in the same place. It cannot be. Is there something that's missing in our spiritual lives that uh, perhaps we have we've overlooked? Turn with me to um, John chapter 6, and this is where we're going to stay for a while. Jesus makes some very, very... Hard to understand words, but I think that's where um, we need to really focus, okay? As we said, John chapter 6, uh, as we read, uh, Jesus says, You know, truly, truly, I say to you, seek me not, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. There's that commodification again, yeah? Commodification again. That's where we, we want to take the things of God to, to apply it according to our own agendas. That's a, that's a deadly thing. Okay? It's a deadly thing. We've got to constantly be aware of that in our, our peaceful Christian life here in the West. The commodification of spiritual gifts and things of God, even blessings of God. You don't get blessed sort of, because of what you want to do with it also because you, 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 you want to uh, uh, impose your own agenda on it, but because of the fact that it is meant to do something in and through you. In some ways, you have to ask it for its agenda. Yeah? Do not work, verse 27, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for in Him the Father God has set His seal. Okay? This eternal life, not the life that goes on living on in terms of uh, uh, infinite time, but the quality of the life of God, the quality of God's power and His person, His love, His healing, His, His ability to do things that change people's lives and people in the world. The Son of Man will give to you, for him, on Him the Father God has set His seal. Therefore they said to Him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? So they understand that. You know what He's talking about. It's talking about something, this eternal life, will that will cause them to work the works of God. The works of God that are to be distinguished from our own natural works. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He has sent. And so, what Jesus is saying is this, believing is an important thing. Okay? Believing is important. I think he's going to go deeper into this as we look at the passage. Verse 30. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you. He didn't say gave you, but gives you. Okay? The Son of Man will give you. So he's talking about something that is kind of in the future. Present or future. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And the Lord said, and then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And so what's happening here is this, uh, Jesus is saying, Moses, for all the manna that, they, that the children of Israel had, did not give them this bread. That this manna was not the bread. That manna was something that they ate, but they still died. It did not last. Qualitatively, even though it came from heaven, and the, children of Israel, and, the, and, the, and, the and the Jews were saying, well, can you match that? Jesus is saying, that's nothing. That's not even the thing. The manna is not even the thing. The manna in which the children of Israel ate the thing was also not the thing. This commodification of things of heaven is not the thing. You have this tendency to commodify what I want to do so that you will feel good about it, so that the Christian life is all about self-help, so much so that through the Christian life and through God's help, you can have what you want. 
This is not what the way, what, what the bread of heaven is about. But more than that, even if you had the right attitude, even if you had the right non-commodification, it was not the bread of life. Because what Jesus was saying here is this, that, um, that, that, um, he was the bread of life. Moses did not give them the bread of life. Wow. What is, what is he talking about? Right? You mean manna is nothing? You mean manna is not even, it's not, not even it? You know, actually, if you look at other, other parts of, uh, of, um, um, John, you will also see in verse, I believe it's 49, uh, uh, Jesus says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Oops. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus speaking about the fact that there is another kind of bread that he has come to give and he, which he himself is. Now, I believe that the church has not come into contact with this bread by and large. Because this bread, if you eat this bread, it will give you eternal life. If you do not eat this bread, the life will that, that you're, you're eating is not the eternal one. Wow. Wow. So what? So what? Where does that leave us? Yeah? Jesus says that. This is what is going to cause you to have the sustenance to be able to work the works of God. You believe in me. And you eat me. You eat me. Okay, you eat me. Not the manna. The, the Jews were thinking, well, you can't top what happened in, in the wilderness. Jesus says, the wilderness is nothing compared with what I give to you. And I think he's coming closer to answering our question. Why is it I am not getting stronger? Why is it my conviction is not growing into boldness and not being ashamed? Why is it the inside of my spiritual life is not really thickening and getting more and more strength and weight? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes me will never thirst. Okay, the Jews were grumbling, verse 41, uh, about him because he said, I am the bread that came down of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They're confused, right? They look at Jesus, he looks he look like just, come on, he's just, what, 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 what do you think you are? You came from heaven? What? I saw you growing up in Pasadena, in El Molino right there, running around without your diapers. How can you say you came from heaven? Huh? What, can, what kind of nonsense is this? They couldn't understand that Jesus was not who he was in the flesh, but there was something of God that was actually flowing through him. What Jesus was saying is this, I come, and for you to experience the true life, I am the life. I'm the life. I'm going to give myself to you on the cross. And on the cross, when I die for you, it will be that my life is given to you so much so that every one of you can have my eternal life, my life, the life that I have lived, the life that I manifest, the life of God, the Zoe-like life of God. What Jesus was saying is this, unless you have that life, Everything, every life that you have, no matter how miraculous it is, no matter how providential it is, is not going to give you eternal life. It's not going to cause you to work the works of God. What Jesus was saying is this, you have to live by the life that I give you, that I am giving, about to give you and I go to the cross. You have to live by that. You cannot live by your own flesh trying to follow the Bible. You cannot live by your own way of taking my blessings and doing whatever you want to do. You have to live by me coming into you and directing you and becoming the sacramental Christ for you. What does that mean? Well, here's it, here's, here, here it is. Verse 47. Truly I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. Okay? He who believes in me have eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which come down from heaven so that one can may eat of it and not die. And not die. So much that the works that we do continue to live on in the people that we are ministering to. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 51. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
and the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so what God is, what Jesus is saying is this, I'm going to give you my flesh. How? On the cross, when he died, he exchanged his life with your life. He exchanged your life with my life. His life with my life. He destroyed the old life. He killed it on the cross. On the cross, he broke the power of sin, the power of addiction, the power of the devil upon my life. He broke it and gave himself to me. So much so that I now as a Christian, having been dead to myself, being cut off from my old self, am given a new life and it's the life of Christ. Without that life, actually I have no life. I am not, as a Christian, tasked with the task of trying to improve or heal my old life. That old life has been destroyed. The Son of God was given for us so much so that we do so that we will not have to go back to our old life and try to improve it. No, when the Son of God is given and He gives us our flesh, He takes our flesh and He cuts it off so much so that we have His flesh. His life in us. That doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. Now, so much of Christianity today is trying to improve or heal up the old life. What God is saying is, no, that can't be healed. It's, a, it's, a, it's what Romans uh, chapter 8 calls the body of sin. It's diseased. It cannot, it's corrupted. And when you keep on trying to feed it with manna that is commodified, it will stink and stink and stink and it will continue to be sour. No, what I have come to do is to break that so much so that you will be disconnected with it. So much so that even though you do feel it, it has no power over you. It has no lock over it. It has no grip over you. Its power has been broken. So that even though you can see it there, you can feel it subjectively, you know this, its power over you has been broken. What Jesus is saying is, I give you my flesh for your flesh. I give you my flesh and you have to eat that flesh and you have to eat it every day knowing that it has been given to you. So what does that mean? It means this, that because of the fact that Jesus says, you know, in verse uh, 53, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the death on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Wow, that's, it's like, by that, by this time, the Jews are just going batty, just going crazy. It's like their minds are just going, just blowing up. And what Jesus is basically saying is very simple. What he's saying is this, I am your life now. I am your life. I'm completely given to you. But when you eat my life, you cannot be the center it is a sacrament. My life comes into you. I will rule over you. And you must live, not commodifying me, but must live in obedience to me. My life is not a resource to you. It's a life to be obeyed. So when you read the Bible, you don't read the Bible as a resource book, as a manual for how you can live a better life and apply that, that word. No, you don't apply the word. You obey the word. When you apply the word, you apply it for your own whatever creative purposes. When you obey the word, you follow me. You obey me. You don't obey just print. You obey me because I'm in my word. I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when, when you get, when I come to you, I give you myself. What, that, what does that mean? That when you read the word of God, you don't just say, okay, what shall I do about it now? Let's get to it. Let's, let, let's just do it. No, you don't. You receive me. The Bible is not a key to see where you went wrong and then try to correct yourself. What Jesus is saying is this. The Bible is not an instruction book so that whatever insights you get from the Bible, you can now go ahead and do it and apply it. The Bible is... More than that, when we read the Word of God and God speaks to us, He comes to us. Yes, He tells us how to repent and all that. But in the end, in order for you to live that repentance and to be transformed, you need something more than your application of the Word. You need more than the preaching of the Word. You need more than prayer ministry. You need more than what the preacher can give to you. 
You need more than your accountability group. You need the power, the flesh, the substance, the life, the supernatural blood of Christ to be able to do it. Because if you don't have it, you have no life in yourself. Now here's the thing. We think that if we can read the Word of God or hear the Word of God and the Word of God gives us insight to our life, we can just say, okay, we can just do this. Okay, I'm just going to... Now I see my, I see the light. I can do it. What Jesus is saying is this. No, the Christian life is not that. The Christian life is such that in order for you to do my word, you must eat me. You need my strength. You need me to come upon you. Because if not, you're going to go Sunday, and, uh, Sunday after church and you'll say, yes, I see it. And you'll get something out of it. It's called insight. But what you need is not just insight. Insight is just the sort of the introduction. You need the strength and the power to be able to do it. And that strength and power has to come from God. That is why a lot of times Christians, we try to apply the Word of God into our life, but we don't come to God. We don't come to the living Word, the living bread, so that He can actually impart to us what He has given Actually, on the cross, He's already given us everything. But subjectively, we don't feel it. We feel our flesh. We feel our depression. We feel our own um, weakness and we feel our own lack. It is when we feel our lack over and against the promises of God, the objective truth, that God says, I've given you my life. I've given you an overcoming power. I've given you overcoming spirit. I've given you the spirit of the supply of the spirit. When we come to, to, to this tension, when we see our own lack, our own la- lack of, of power subjectively, and then we try to look at the word of God and the word of God says us something that we can almost not be able to relate to because it says it so well. It says that we've got something so good. And we find this gap there. Many Christians find that this is where Everything breaks down because they feel that the Word of God says we have overcoming sin, we have, we have, we have the overcoming life in, in us, we have the life of Christ in us. But when we see ourselves, when we see ourselves, we wonder why is it what I'm experiencing is not tantamount to what the Word of God says. There's the objective reality of the Word of God that Christ is, there's nothing more He can give. He has given us everything. And our own subjective experience in which we feel we can't, we're not even sure about God. We feel far away from God. We feel the, not the strength of God. We don't feel the provision of God. We have faith, feel the fear of God. We don't feel the security, the self-esteem, the gifts, the love, the comfort. We don't feel any of that. What do you do with this? Our problem has always been this. We do not eat the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus. What he means is this. When you have come to whatever insight you've got, that insight is not enough. You need not insight. You need me. You have to come to me and wait on me for my supply or else you always feel that there is a distance between what the Word of God says and your subjective. But when you believe in me, you believe the Word of God, you wait for it to become subjectively true in yourself. It's almost as if, you know, um, one of the things that I think I've shared before is that we used to go as a family to San Diego. It's called this place, this horrible place. It's called, um, we have all those slides. I know I wrote it in my notes, uh, but, I, but in my notes, I, I'm almost wanting to deny its existence. Aquatica, Aquatica, right? Aquatica is a crazy place for crazy people because they go up hundreds of feet up. And then they go slide down, Yeah? You go slide down hundreds of feet, okay, hundreds of yards, just like crazy for, for no apparent reason. No apparent reason. But my family are crazy, so they always uh, force me to go to Aquatica. So I, up to, up to a few years ago, uh, managed to dodge 
aquatica. Uh, we, sometimes I say I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm doing this, but actually it's just a dodge. But finally, I, I, I was caught. And so I had to go. And I must admit to you that it disturbed the whole week before that Saturday when we had to go. So we went, anyway, we went. And you can imagine what it's like for me. I was trying to find ways in which I can overcome the petrification okay, that I have just to see heights. I just can't stand heights. I've been, I've been on, I, I, I once toured uh, uh, Cologne in Germany with my parents. My parents just walked right up to the, to the to cathedral steeple without any problems, and I could not go any further. I, my, my legs just would not take me any further. So now this place was going to be higher, higher than Cologne Cathedral. And so I rehearsed it and came up with all my coping mechanisms. Finally, the day came and the moment came, so we went up. And I went, walked up. Finally, we came to the top of it. Everything had been set up. Everything had been set up. And, you know, one after another, we were queued up or lined up. Finally, it came to my turn. My turn. Everything I knew about coping with the fear of heights, everything I knew about how to get up safely had been done. Everything, I, everything that I needed to know had been, I knew already. There remained one thing for me to do, and that is to go down that blinking slide. Okay? I knew everything about this. And all it said I had to do was to just don't do anything. Just go down. I had to do it on my own. I thought it may be good for Cindy and I to show our love for one another by just holding hand in hand and just go down with her moral support. But no, she didn't think it was the best idea. And so I had to go alone. Finally, I went down. There's nothing I could do before it to warn me of what the experience was. But at the end of it, I had to go through it by myself, and I had to experience it for myself. I had to eat it. I had to, I had to partake of it. I had to believe in it. I had to swallow it. I had to actually go through that dark tunnel by myself with no one else so that the experience is mine. I came down, and my kids were looking at me, wondering whether Daddy had just completely had a nervous breakdown or not. I was smiling because it was okay. But it was only okay because I went through it myself. And sometimes what can happen is that with the Word of God, we're like this. We apply, we do all whatever it is, but at the end of the day, you have to experience the strength of God. You have to experience the reality that God has for you because He has it for you. And so, I remember there were times in which I had, I had no idea whether God was going to heal this woman in, this, in my church who had a terrible uh, um, um, breathing um, problem. And it, at times, what would happen is that in the middle of a service, she would just be in convulsions because she couldn't breathe. And there was nothing much that medicine could do for her because her medicine didn't seem to work. And sometimes during a meeting would have to interrupt the meeting because she's there rolling on the ground in convulsions and I have to pray for her and all our church had to pray for her. There is nothing like that experience when you not only pray for a person and the person can go off his merry, merry way home, but you have to pray for that person because if you don't, if nothing happens, that person could die. And I remember praying for her during one of those, those bouts, going down there and praying. I had preached about healing. I had preached about how Jesus healed all the sick. I preached, preached through the book of Luke about all about healing. But right then, then, I had to know whether healing would actually take place in her. Right then, then, all my scriptures back and forth, pros and cons about healing, were, 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 were swirling around my mind. But I had to somehow, as I was praying for her, draw from the supply of the Spirit that whatever the theology of it, she must not die. She must not die. She must not leave this meeting completely devastated. 
And so I remember praying for her, and I wonder whether you've had this experience, and praying in such a way that if that prayer does not work, you are in such serious trouble. And I remember praying for her in such a way that as I prayed for her, all my own gap between what I thought, what I just thought, what I just uh, preached, and what I really, really felt there was glaring for me. It's just glaring for me. And I had to pray, and I had to pray, and almost pray until something moved. Now, I'm about to share with you what does it mean to eat the blood and, 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 uh, and the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are faced with a situation where you feel your own lack, as well as know the objective reality of God, what Jesus says you have to believe in, that means you hold on. And this is where the soaking room is going to be very, very important for us as a church. Because you hold on until that virtue, that power, that strength, that knowing begins to come. At first, when I was praying for her, all I felt was doubt. Swirling doubt. Swirling doubt. But to believe is not to not doubt. To believe is to still, still continue looking to God in spite of your doubt, right? To believe is not to not have doubt. To believe is to hold on to God. And I remember what I did was that I just held on to God. I could not look at her. I could not look at her because the more I looked at her, the more discouraged I got. I had to focus my eyes upon Him. And as I prayed for her, I closed my eyes because if I opened my eyes, I would get very discouraged. I set my eyes towards Him and all I could see is my own thoughts. Now, I was about to eat the blood and, and, and the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. I began to pray in the Spirit. I began to call out to Him and, and, and worship Him and praise Him. So much so that the sound of my praise and the sound of my worship and the sound of, my, of, the, of the Word of God began to be a little bit louder than the loud doubts and the panic and the fear that I, I was having. It was in this place that I felt that the Lord was actually quite absent. But the only way in which I could actually be aware of God's presence is to align my soul and my heart, not with what I was feeling, not my re- like my reality, but with God's reality. This is where, when you go, people who talk about their own reality and all that, there's, there's a place for that. This is not that place. This is not that place to talk about your reality. This is the place to talk about God's reality and focus on His, His reality. And I began to find that as, as all these things were swirling around me, I just held. I just held. And I allowed myself to worship Him even though I didn't like, feel like it. As I did that, more and more, the doubts began to get softer. How long do I pray? I pray until the doubts silence themselves. If it takes me a day, it will, I will take a day. If it takes me a week, it will take me a week. But I will wait until it happens. That's what belief means. Belief is not, I'll try it, and then if it doesn't work, then I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go away. Belief means to be committed, to swallow it, to be able to actually commit, be committed to this sacrament of God's healing that is there for me, that controls what I do. And it's in, as in this place that I prayed and prayed until, like little wafers of honey, there's a little pleasure, a little bit, a little particle of positive word came. Just a fleeting thought. God is present. Just like the little wafers of manna. They come and they're so thin, they're so fine that you have to hold on to them. It's a little bit of pleasure in the midst of all that. And yes, there are doubts all over, but you choose that and you hold on to it and you don't let go of it and you cling to it and it disappears and then you wait some more. Little by little, little by little, little by little, Conviction begins to, start, to, to, to form. And as the conviction begins to form, you begin to say, I'm taking it. I'm t- 
taking it. I'm focusing my thought on that rather than all the other legitimate thoughts that I have. And in that, I focus, focus, and focus. Does that make sense? I believe that as we do that, that makes us more and more begin to see the mass of bread, mass of substance that Jesus is to us. Most of us don't have time for that. Because of that, we are starving. We read a lot. We, we cogitate a lot. But the actual taking in by faith of Jesus' death on, on the cross and taking in of, of his life, the fact that he has given me his life, that all that he has given me is enough for this woman. It is enough for this woman who's already right now convulsing on the ground. Her saliva is coming all over the place. It looks very ugly. People are freaking out. And it was at this time that I began to realize it is enough. Did I doubt? I still doubted. But I focused and clung on and embraced the little wafer, that wafer-like honeycomb thing of manna that was there, that thing of God. And it was in this place I could eat. Now, soaking is really important because it's not just a matter of hearing the Word of God and saying, okay, got it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to apply it. No, you haven't got it yet because until you actually wait upon that Word, wait upon the faith to actually come, the, clen- the, the cleansing, the change in, in, in mood, the change in attitude, until that has happened, you haven't eaten it. You have heard the Word of God, you've got it inside, but you haven't got it yet. And that is why soaking is so important. Because soaking is not just applying the Word of God, it is being before Him. Because at the end of the day, what we are eating is not words, we are eating Him. And so by, 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 by setting myself up in prayer, I believe that somewhere along the line, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will appear. I don't know when. But insofar as I do not know when, but I stay in, I am believing. I'm believing, I'm holding on to it. And that hope does not disappoint me. And there are times in which I have been, there was a period in which I was completely in paranoia. And it lasted me for about a year, I think a year, actually more, a little bit more. I don't know how it came, but I had come to a point where I could not believe anything in the Word of God. I couldn't believe it because the paranoia was so strong inside me that I could not get rid of it. The more and more I tried to, to confess the Word of God and all that, the more and more it just became head stuff. Until I, I began to, to realize that if it is true that Jesus' life has been given to me, even though I can't find it, it must be there. It must be there. I miss, and, and I, I have to eat it. Because it tells me that if I eat it, I will have life. I will have eternal life. And that life will be better and bigger and stronger than my paranoia. I used to not be able to get out of bed. I used to be afraid whenever the phone rang. Whenever somebody would knock on the door or, or say, Michael, I'd like to talk to you, I would, my heart would just go crazy because of the paranoia. I don't even know how I got it. I just knew that I was in it. I could not read the Bible because the Bible was not speaking to me. All I could do is to pray. And so I began to start praying in the Spirit. I could not get up until I prayed in the Spirit. Until as I prayed in the Spirit more and more and more and more and more, a little bit of pleasure would come. A little bit, a little wind, a little wind, like a little flake of manna. A little flake of manna would come and it would be sweet and it would be fleeting. And so I'll have to hold on, try to hold on to it, and then it will be lost, and then I'll go back again. Are any of you in depression, in anxiety? You don't get healed just by reading the Bible. You have to read it in faith. That's the part. But you know what? What's more powerful is the fact that the Bible doesn't talk about things. God has given himself to you. That when you in, in your soaking room... Open yourself to God. God will be there. Be open to Him. And at a certain point, it begins to build. A little flake, another flake, another flake, another flake. And God is there. God bless you. Let's pray.
We bless your name, Lord. We want to eat of you. We want to know you. We feel the gap between our own lack and what you say. But we want you to span the gap, come to us, and feed us till we want no more. There are some of us who want to go to the works of God, but feel our own powerlessness, the lack of eternity in the things that we say and we do and we pray. But here we are here to soak you in. We are here to wait upon you until you manifest yourself to us. Our eyes are upon you. We find that there's nothing we can do to give us eternal life except you give it. So we welcome you. As we, and we're going to close in prayer for those who need to go. But this is the point in some ways that is more important than everything that I said. And that is the opportunity to go down by yourself. That slide. Everything has been said, perhaps, that you need to hear, perhaps. But for now, what God wants to do is to feed you. Feed us. And after we close in prayer, I want to invite you into the soaking room, for those of you who can make it. And there, God is going to meet you, but you have to give Him time. And I want to invite you to just worship Him quietly, set your mind towards Him. If your mind gets distracted, bring it back. Because there's a point in which you're going to sense the wafer, the particle of God's presence, a word. Grab hold of it. So we welcome you, Lord. We ask you that even now, that you will take your word and convert it into strength and power. That those words will cause us to meet you yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.